Welcome to the Dipshit Files, episode 50 fucking 8. Wow. I curse a lot. Hello, Mrs. Scriptkeeper. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Scriptkeeper. It is time to continue last week's little uh, city on fire, town on fire. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to, this is the conclusion um, with all the detail and, and, you know, all the fun stuff like that. Cool. I heard there's a, some conspiracies and some other. There was a conspiracy wrapped up in this. Yeah. And, you know, and there's still, uh, there's people that are still holding on to that idea. <laughs> they always do. Yeah. All right. Well, well you know, we, it might be true. You let's never find know. out if they're right. Let's right. open up the file. Today we're continuing with our story of Centralia, Pennsylvania, and the fire that's been raging underneath that town since 1962. Hmm. This fire began on the outskirts of town near the Oddfellow Cemetery, but within no time it had reached the southern edge of Centralia, and at first the town's residents thought it was kind of interesting, cool even, maybe (laughs) at night. Today, there's nothing visible, but just a handful of years back, the townspeople could actually see the ground glowing, either red from the fire or sometimes blue from the methane gas burning off at a vent on the ground. The people who remained in the town thought that they could live with it, especially since many of them no longer had to shovel snow in the winter. (laughs) On the south ridge of town where the fire burns, there's a pungent smell of sulfur in the air. Clouds of steam put a gray filter on the bright sun in the winter. Centralia is a world of fire and ice. The air can be bitterly cold and the ground hotter than a sauna. Hmm. Sounds like a surreal existence and one one might want to explore, right? Mm. But then people started passing out in their beds from carbon monoxide leaking in through their basements and steam could be seen spurting through the cracks in the pavement. If you've not listened to part one of this story, you'll want to do that first, as it lays the foundation for today's episode, and without it, you might be a little bit lost. But we're just going to jump into this one and uh, leave it up to you if you want to start with part one. City on fire, too? (laughs) It's more of a town, really. On Valentine's Day in 1981, the weather was unseasonably warm. It's unseasonably warm today. It could be from the underground fire that's burning at 700 degrees. I don't know. And 12-year-old Todd Dombrowski was playing in his grandmother's backyard at the base of an old ash tree on South Locust Avenue in Centralia, Pennsylvania. Dombrowski. When the ground underneath him suddenly opened up. Oh, that's not ideal. Dropping the young boy into a hole that was four feet wide and 150 feet deep. Oh, shit. Scared to death, Todd gripped onto the root of an ash tree, and he was able to hang on, dangling over a pit that was belching up enough heat and toxic carbon monoxide fumes to end his young life. That's some Indiana Jones shit. Until finally, his 16-year-old cousin, Eric, rushed over and pulled Todd to safety. Guess who that kid's favorite cousin is now? Now, this hadn't been the first time a sinkhole had opened out of nowhere in Centralia. Years of mining, both legal and illegal, had left empty pockets under the earth, and the fire that had been raging beneath the town for decades had further hollowed out the ground in areas. But 
To know that young Todd Dombrowski had been an inch from death was a wake-up call for most that most people needed. Mm-hmm. Todd recalled what it felt like as he suddenly fell into the earth. As the steam and fumes from the mine shaft engulfed him, making it hard to breathe, hard to see, and even harder to yell for help, Todd described hearing a strange whooshing sound, like wind. And every time he heard the sound of this wind, the ground beneath him would crumble away even more, deepening the pit below. When he was, what he was hearing was the mine fire raging beneath him, hmm. the flames pulling in as much oxygen as it could as he dangled helplessly above. In a 2002 interview, Todd said, quote, the last thing in my mind was breathing any of those noxious fumes because we grew up around that. That town was leaking that gray, smelly, noxious gas for as long as I can remember. But just the way the earth was, and no matter what way I struggled, I wasn't really getting anywhere. There were no angels, no life flashing before your eyes. I knew I was going, and there was no doubt. End quote. Hmm. Poor kid. Yeah. So Todd Dombrowski's fall into the sinkhole was obviously terrifying. Mm -hmm. I mean, Todd himself said that for a long time he was traumatized by this incident. He couldn't even fall asleep in his own bed. He kept reliving what he felt that day, uh, falling into that sinkhole over and over again. They actually measured the level of carbon monoxide that was coming out of the hole that Todd had fallen into. And the officials stated that if he'd been in there for maybe another 30 to 45 seconds, he would have gotten carbon monoxide poisoning and he would have died. As it was, he had to be rushed to the hospital and he had to be put on oxygen. The doctors run blood gas tests as well. And this was after they were able to finally able to remove Todd's baked on clothing. Literally, his fall into the hole caused his heavy winter clothing to become covered in mud, which was then very quickly baked dry in the moments he dangled helplessly above the fire. Now, they say that the odds of that actually helping him Uh, while he was dangling over the hole was pretty high. That makes sense. Being covered in the mud um, helped insulate him, but it's it's kind of a double-edged sword. It helped insulate him, but if he... Kind of bake him a little bit. Exactly, exactly. He became a little kiln. Yeah, yeah. So if he did not hold on to the roots of that tree, he would have slid down a slope, which was about 300 feet in depth. And the temperatures recorded were anywhere from four to six hundred degrees at the bottom of that hole. That wouldn't have been a fun little slide. Yeah. So obviously the fact that Todd fell into this hole was extremely unfortunate, but the timing could not have been more perfect. See, earlier that month, another Centralia resident named Tony Andrade who was retired and living on disability, um, as well as his wife and his children, were told that their house on South Locust Avenue was uninhabitable due to the dangerous concentrations of mine fire gases that had been making them sick. The Andrade family were not told this in person. They weren't offered help uh, moving or finding a new place to live. They weren't given any financial compensation. They weren't given any explanation of how they were supposed to sell their house in order to get the money to relocate to safer living conditions. They were simply sent a notice in the mail. And initially, Tony was overcome by confusion and fear because he still had a mortgage on his house. 
and he couldn't afford to pay for two places to live on his humble income. The Andrade's home was the third in Centralia to get this notice, but to be clear, these people were not getting any assistance from their local or state government. No offer of financial compensation, no offer of relocation assistance, nothing. Hmm. Especially in the beginning of this whole ordeal, they were basically told, yeah, you shouldn't live here, it's not safe for you, and uh, yeah, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> However, there were some people who cared. There were some people who helped to make the Centralia problem more of a problem for the people who could actually do something about it. So, just to name one person, DeWitt Smith. He was the director of PEMA, the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency, and, and he actually Pima. came Pima. He actually came across a memo from the health department about what was going on in the chaos in Centralia. And Somebody this, call Pima. <laughs> Sorry. And this memo actually stated, and I paraphrase, obviously, listen, you're gonna hear about this thing, but you stay away from this because we don't want to take any responsibility for it. Nope. <laughs> but in a nutshell, you know, that's what it said. Okay. That's the thing about Centralia. Somebody did this. Somebody is to blame. But nobody really knows who to blame at this point. But they know somebody fucked up and somebody should be fixing it. But nobody really wanted to take any responsibility. And then this man, DeWitt Smith, he served during World War II in the Army. And he was one of those... Um, uh, no man left behind kind of military guys right. who would become one of the heroes that the people of Centralia desperately needed. So on February 14th, a group of important and influential people from congressmen to state senators were all gathered in Centralia to investigate the problem for themselves. February 14th was the same day that Todd Dombrowski fell into that sinkhole that just appeared beneath him. So just as this group of bigwigs were leaving Tony Andrade's home, the panicked 12-year-old boy covered in baked-on mud that was still warm from the sinkhole ran up to them breathless and told them, Listen, <laughs> I was just sucked into the earth. So everyone rushes over to his grandmother's backyard and the officials set up a barricade around the large steaming hole this ought to do it if so, we put up a sign that says no children yeah, just don't look don't look at it yeah. roger do you feel like this is actually helping well we don't want kids falling in sinkholes you just put parking cones around the hole i got some caution tape a lot of people in town think this is a portal to hell i have a sign that says keep out they started investigating and discovered from old mine maps that there had once been a sloping mine shaft underneath Todd Dombrowski's grandmother's yard. Dombrowski. That shaft had been filled with dirt and sediment, which had kept it stable. But gradually, hot steam from the mine fire had caused the dirt to become damp, soft and weak until it could no longer even hold up its own weight causing it to collapse inwards, hmm. taking Todd Dombrowski with it. They say a lot of last names come from what your ancestors used to do for a living. Watch it. I am curious what the Dombrowskis were up to. This incident gave the state of Pennsylvania and the State Department no choice but to take what was happening in Centralia seriously. Fine, we'll address the decades-old fire. For once, they could no longer ignore it. Hmm. The governor at that time, Dick Thornburg, put DeWitt Smith at the head <laughs> of attack... <laughs> Sorry, I'm a child. Dick Thornween. I can't help it. Old Dick Thorncock III. Dick Thornburg. <laughs> the governor, Dick Thornburg, put DeWitt Smith at the head of a task force made up of state and federal officials and ordered Smith to conduct a study of the mine fire. 
Another study, right? Mm -hmm. Those of you who have listened to part one. <laughs> Got a few of these. You, you, there's just study. We're, we're, we're going to study it, yeah. you know? <laughs> That's a good way for bureaucrats right? to be like, we're not let's, sure. Let's just do a study. We have any idea what to do. Because there's studies after studies happening in Centralia, borehole studies and studies to see if ash barriers were doing any good. It's just, you know, this is something that the residents really complained about. And it seemed like the people in charge we're very much studying the problem, but not doing anything to fix the problem. Well, you want to know what you're doing. I mean, I get the idea. The word study in this kind of context makes 20, it sound like they're like, we are trying to be really smart about this. Yeah, but it was 20 fucking years of studies. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, come on. So DeWitt Smith actually took this assignment very seriously, and he landed in Centralia by February 19th. So, like, within five days, he was done and there. Okay. Now, the story goes uh, that as Smith's car rounded the last curb on Route 61 before Centralia, and he saw steam rising from the ground at the side of the highway, he remarked of how it reminded him of a poor man's Dante Inferno. Mm -hmm. It's a second time that they talked about that. Yeah. So let's take a look at the kind of town DeWitt Smith walked into. The state of Centralia, Pennsylvania, by mid-February 1981, uh, during this time, first I need to explain to you uh, what the canary in the coal mine tradition is. Now, some of you may already know this. Mm -hmm. This is a tradition that dated back to 1911, and it continued on until 1986. Canaries are not happy about it at all. No, no, they they felt very upset about it. And PETA. Also I didn't. It. I didn't know it went on until 1986. I had no idea. Damn. Uh, I didn't know that it started as late as 1911 either. I thought it was earlier than I that. I would think so too, yeah. So canaries, like other birds, are very good early detectors of carbon monoxide because they're vulnerable to airborne toxins. Due to the fact that they need such immense quantities of oxygen to enable them to fly and to fly at heights that would make humans altitude sick, the canary's anatomy allows them to get a dose of oxygen when they inhale and another... When they exhale, nice. I didn't know that. I didn't know that uh, they're they're able to do that by holding air in there. They've got extra sacs, so I guess that's how that works. I put it in my bird sack. <laughs> my bird sack is itchy. So this is why miners would start bringing canaries in cages down in the coal mines with them because if the canary died from carbon monoxide poisoning, uh -huh. it would still give the humans enough time to get out before they were affected by the carbon monoxide poisoning. Poor canary. And as I explained in part one of this story, they did this or they felt that they had to do this because carbon monoxide is very hard to detect. Right. It's almost undetectable. It doesn't it's have smart. It's just it's a dick thing to do to the bird. Right. It doesn't have any color. It's odorless. You really only know that you're being poisoned by carbon monoxide when you start to feel its effects. Thanks. It could have been radon, but we know. Oh, good God. You and your damn radon stories. <laughs> so for a while in Centralia, there was a place called Lou's Barbershop. They used to actually sell canaries to residents so that they would be alerted to the poisonous gases in their homes. But, but they all died. But yeah, by night by night in the store. By nineteen eighty one, they stopped stalking the birds because they were literally Dropping dead in they their come cages. To town. <laughs> yes. Hey, Frank, how's it going, man? Hey, Bill. Yeah, my last canary died. I came in to get another one. Yeah, go ahead and pick one out. Uh, Frank. Yeah, Bill. I think all your canaries are dead. No, they're just sleeping. Yeah, I don't think canaries sleep like this. Now, try the other cage. Yeah, Thanks for coming in, Tim. 
Yeah. Uh, Frank. Yeah, what is it, Bill? Are these supposed to be the canaries? Those are totally canaries. Yeah, Frank, this is a lizard with feathers glued to it. No, you don't want those? Check out the other cage. Yeah, those are gerbils with feathers stapled to it. I think you might want one of the sleeping ones. Yeah, I think I'm going to move out of town. There was so much carbon monoxide in the air, and of course, canaries are sensitive to uh, CO2. I would have loved to interview some of the people living in this town. It's like, <laughs> that, do you just don't care? I yeah, know. we don't care. Well, they were so sensitive, they just couldn't keep the canaries alive. Mm-hmm. Um, the canaries were then replaced by actual electronic CO2 detectors, and most of the homes on Locust Street and Wood Street had these uh, detectors just inside going off their homes. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but even then, people were saying it was just insanity. The CO2 detectors were going off all the yep, time, yep. constantly, <laughs> to the point where they would just open their windows and let the air, the house air out. But the CO2 detector would still be going off even with the windows open. <laughs> and people just started getting used to it. Lucky. Even in the middle of the night, when the thing would go off without a warning <clears throat> and wake up the whole house... They just would ignore it. They'd open the windows, air out the house, go back to bed. That's a weird existence. Isn't it, though? Yeah. So at this point, people were getting sick. But worse than that, they were watching their young children become ill as well. In January and February of 1981, the gas alarm at the St. Ignatius School went off 19 times. Nine-year-old Rachel Lamb was forced to sleep with an oxygen machine every night. Five-year-old Shannon Buckley had to be hospitalized due to respiratory issues so many times during the fall of 1980 that the doctor's only advice to her parents was that Shannon need to be uh, removed from her home for at least a week. I feel like in modern times, if we would hear about this, Mm -hmm. I hope, we would start a GoFundMe immediately to get all these people re-established. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it would be a successful one, a big one kind of thing. Yeah. But... This is, this is, uh, it's... If the government's not going to help, which uh, is, you know, you, and no, I don't we, think they should. They're not the good ones to help anyway. We dig into that. We okay, dig into right, that. So, um, so Shannon, the doctor's advice was for Shannon to leave her house for a week uh, uh-huh. so that her body could actually start taking oxygen in again. And then come back later and do Right, it again. right. So they would eventually be forced to leave their home in order to save the life of their children. The Buckleys are one of 27 families who lost their home to the mine fire. Both Mrs. Buckley and her daughter Shannon suffered chronic respiratory ailments, which they blame in part on the gases in their home. Residents described constantly feeling sick to their stomachs, sitting down to watch television, watch a television program only to wake up and find that hours had passed. They were having headaches, burning and watering eyes, and a constant state of feeling well, sick. Somebody had to leave the town. Be like, I'm going to go visit Aunt mm-hmm. June. Right. And they go to Aunt June's house two and towns like, over. And they're like, I feel really good. I've never felt this good now for 20 <laughs> years. Then they come back and they're like, okay, mm-hmm. guys, I think there's something going, you know. Right. Well, they were. That's just they it. Knew, but it they was happening. Yeah. It was happening. On March 10th, another sinkhole opened up in the backyard of a woman who was just feet away and pruning her garden. Uh, and the mayor of Centralia started warning people to stay out of their yards. <laughs> you punk sons of bitches, stay off my sinkhole and pull your pants up to approximate what my pants look like. And keep an eye on the ground while they're walking around the town, which is re-damn-diculous, yeah. if you ask me. Yes. I mean, you own... It's fine. You, Everything's it'll be fine. fine. Just don't go outside. <laughs> don't be inside. Try not to smoke around yep. the air. I mean, I'll say, so you own your own home, right? 
and you you live there, but you shouldn't go out into your yard because a hole might open up underneath you. <laughs> and you can't walk around because the earth might eat your feet. And you can't I mean, pay somebody to fix it for you. Either. Right, because, yeah. yeah, you're yeah, it's sad. Yeah. So on March 19th, 1981, the townspeople gathered outside in the cold and watched as 61-year-old John Coddington was removed from his home on a stretcher and rushed to the hospital after he had fallen asleep and would not awaken. Mm. Now, remember, John Coddington had the only gas station in town. Remember that? Yeah. And it had recently been shut down because the gas tanks holding the fuel beneath his service station would have been a Moab. What Jack is referring to is a mother of all bombs, Moab, not mother of all poopy. Right. Well, they're getting dangerously hot because of the underground fire. Yeah. Mm. So. They had to drain them so that they wouldn't explode. But John Coddington and his family still lived in the upper apartment over the garage. And the levels of carbon monoxide in that area, in John Coddington's home specifically, were so high that they were all constantly just passing out. And it just kind of became part of their life. They would literally just be walking along and just pass out. We are really good at just going with the flow. Aren't right. We? So I, I mean, I guess this is, this is life just now. me and this now. I'll just pass out as I walk 10 feet. I'll wake up. Then well, I'll get, I'll get down the hall eventually. Exactly. This is something that they had just kind of accepted. Oh, Hey Alex. Yeah. What dude? You're on fire, bro. Yeah. I've been for a couple of weeks. Well, do you want me to help you put it out? Yeah. Fuck it. I'm used to it. I mean, dude, you're on fire. Mind your own business. Yeah. That they had these headaches that they, you know, sometimes would just fall into such a deep sleep that they had to be shaken awake. Imagine the conversations at like the store and should be like, I know. You know maybe the air is not good. It's like here. a town. Like, well, maybe they thought enough for us. maybe they thought they were a town of narcolepsy, narcolepsy patients. <laughs> yeah. You know, people the just all like, everybody just falls asleep. And then I fall asleep. <laughs> we all fall asleep. That's just how things are. I don't know, Susie. Considering all the birds keep dying, I imagine things aren't great. I think you're just being paranoid, Jenny. Susie, the birds that fly through our town just drop dead as soon as they hit the air. Yeah, probably some of those weak city birds. Don't you wonder why we all just pass out every. Oh. Janet, it's fine. Well, John Coddington said it was just annoying, if anything, which I found kind of humorous. Because he'd sit down to watch the evening news, and within minutes, he'd just pass out. And so would the news anchor. <laughs> well, and then he'd wake up. Well, the, This just in. Things are bad, and we need to tell you about it. <laughs> then he'd wake up hours later, and he was pissed because he didn't know what happened on the news. That's <laughs> what bothered him. So this actually had happened again on March 19th. John Coddington went to bed, and he didn't wake up. And actually, the only reason anybody knew that something was even wrong with him was because he had passed out to the point where he kind of fell off the bed and hit the floor, and he still didn't wake up, even though he had smacked the floor pretty good. So his wife, Isabel, called the hospital. Later, the doctors would tell Isabel that if her husband hadn't passed out like that and fallen out of bed, all of them would not have woken up the next morning. Oh, wow. Yeah, like your your husband, your kids, yourself, you would have all died in the night. And she's like, oh, that's crazy to hear. I'm going to go back home now. Right. Well, you know, that's some scary shit. I, know. I, I, I feel for these I, people. It's an impossible situation. Yeah. Well, mm. a lot of them were on fixed, uh, fixed meager incomes, right. and it's very difficult to do anything. A lot of them owned their homes. Yeah. There were very few rentals in that area. So... Now, John Coddington would eventually regain consciousness once he was given oxygen, but Centralia had now watched the, the mine fire almost claim another life. The air in the Coddington home was tested and found to be 100 parts per million. 
the highest possible reading on the dial. You guys are living in like the sun. Did you it, know that? No. It literally pegged the dial. It couldn't go any higher. So <laughs> it's likely that the CO2 levels were even higher than that. Right. And the corresponding tape printed by the machine showed that the gas had remained for 40 two minutes after they had opened the, the windows, which is an incredibly long time. Yeah, you could never close your windows, it sounds like, Mm-mm. even then. But it, right, outside but is it's, bad. Outside is... It's bad it's everywhere. killing the parakeets. I know. <laughs> the canaries. The canaries and the parakeets. So every single day, these gas inspectors made their way to 15 homes in the mire, the mine fire impact zone. Say mm-hmm. that three times fast. No. Which is the area of Centralia that had been the most affected. The inspectors would go in, they'd check the air quality, they'd perform several tests. They'd all die. You know, to make sure that at least in that moment, everything was okay. But most people, including the inspectors, understood that this didn't mitigate the risk of being affected by CO2 poisoning at all. It really didn't because toxic gas readings in this area could go from safe to lethal in minutes. Right. That's so, so crazy. You know... Once a tight-knit community of individuals who could trace their roots back to the early days of Irish immigrants settling into the area to escape the potato famine. Of course it happens to yes. the Irish. Fucking. C- well, Centralia now became a town divided. According to the book Unseen Danger, quote, the Centralia story is one of residents who lost faith in government and each other. It's the story of an ecological disaster that stripped away the facade of community to reveal a segmented, uncoordinated collective that was ill-prepared to unite in the interest of the town as a whole. How instructive. End quote. Hmm. This book goes on to explain that unlike the social structures in other areas hit by natural disasters, such as hurricanes or earthquakes, in this situation with Centralia, it wasn't really a natural disaster at all. I mean, it dealt with natural forces, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't one of those acts of God, natural disasters. In Mm. this town, there was someone to blame. (laughs) In the case of most natural natural disasters, there's usually a warning that something's about to happen. You know, you you have weather alerts and and they say, hey, hurricane's coming, or you'll have certain uh, readings that the earth is shaking somewhere and an earthquake is going to be on its way shortly. But nothing can prepare you for Todd. Well, (laughs) then once you have that warning, you're allowed to prepare a little bit and then the destruction happens and then the community comes together to take in the damage, grieve, Mm -hmm. and start rebuilding together, right? Humans do that a lot. Well, yeah, you know, uh, no one can be blamed in those situations. Mm-hmm. No one's expected to stop an earthquake or prevent a tsunami. Now this town hall will come to order. Well, what the hell are we supposed to do? I don't know, I'm a bureaucrat, what the fuck you want? Well, somebody is at fault for this. What are you talking about? Our town was just busted up by an earthquake. This has to be somebody's fault. How could it possibly be? I know whose fault it is. Where's this, Sebastian? I don't want to talk out of church, but Tommy and Joanne McGillicuddy don't know how to pray right. Yes, we do. Let's not start throwing around allegations. Well, it's either that family or those three witches over there. Oh yeah, the witches, let's burn the witches. <laughs> well, in this shared traumatic experience, it's new bonds and brings people closer together. Whereas with the mine fire in Centralia, this was caused by humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but who do you blame in that situation? Do you blame Todd. The, the mining? Todd Dombrowski is the one that fell in the hole. I blame Todd. Don't blame Todd. <laughs> it was not Todd Dombrowski. 
Dombrowski. Uh, <laughs> it was some other Todd. There are multiple Todds. Oh, okay. So, oh, Todd. The yes. initial Todd that lit a cigarette and threw it down the well or well, whatever. And that was it. Do you blame the mining companies that came in the 1800s? I mean, do you blame the miners who, you know, went in and did bootleg mining and kind of screwed everything up? Well, on the sur- well, probably some of that. But well, on the surface, you would say, oh, yeah, yeah. But people used all those things to, like, heat their homes and right. well, fuel the modern okay. world. So, I don't do you, know. Do you blame the council in Centralia in 1962 that made the decision to set the fire to begin with? Yes. Or do you blame the state and federal representatives who turned a blind eye to it afterward- afterwards and didn't help? I don't blame them, but, I mean, they didn't help. But I blame right? the initial people that were like, let's start on fire. Well, you Fuck know, it. we got a we got a parade. So this all just causes <sighs> anger and resentment because there are so many people to blame. And yet nobody, and wa- nobody wanted to take responsibility. And Todd, of, Todd skipped town. And of course, it's a financial thing as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Relief money from state and federal government is often offered for these natural disasters like hurricanes and things. But not this shit. No. Whereas in Centralia, government officials continually pass the buck. Hmm. The fire wasn't an act of God. It was the physical representation of greed, ignorance, and honestly, a, a little bit of irresponsibility. Hmm. Someone someone had started it. Someone was responsible, and that person or persons should pay to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. All the while, everyone pointed fingers and looked around for who to blame, and the fire continued to blaze unchecked until it became unstoppable. It also didn't help that the force destroying the town raged underground, unseen. If the fire had been at the surface... Or if the poisonous gases it had, it had produced had been more like tangible, maybe like you more could see them, yeah. right. Maybe be able to see it in the air around you. Maybe some residents would have felt a greater sense of danger. I doubt it. People, and a, people are resilient. Well, and like gr- fuck it. All right, my house is hell now. Fucking, <laughs> that's I still own it. Well, maybe they would have felt a greater sense of urgency to leave. But with many people living in Centralia, if they weren't directly affected by what the fire was doing, they didn't really believe it was as big of a deal as people who were actually living in the mine fire affected areas were saying. So another point to keep in mind is that for 20 years, every single government official that visited Centralia or spoke about the mine fire died. They minimized its impact and danger because no one wanted to be the first person to acknowledge that, uh, you know, we have a problem. Yeah. We fucked up a big part mm-hmm. of the state. So they, they it's minimized, they minimized and, um, yeah, people believe them. There were a good amount of Centralia residents, especially the older ones whose families have lived there for generations who didn't want to leave their homes and the lives that they've been building for, well, decades, mm-hmm. even longer than decades sometimes. Maybe it was their, maybe it was their father's home or their father's father's home. If it was their father's father, they'd be like, fuck it, we're going to rebuild this, grab every brick, and we're going <laughs> to move it down the street right, a couple right. blocks up, a couple well, miles. And these people sort of turned on the people who were heavily affected. You know, the people who were living directly at that Locust Avenue and Wood Road area, Mm. the people who had young children that they were worried about, and the people who were constantly demanding officials to fucking do something to fix the problem. So, I suppose the psychology of this is if the residents who wanted to stay and have life go on as it always had, if they could just pretend... (laughs) that everyone else was overreacting and there was really nothing going on, maybe nothing would change for them. Right. Quote, 
in a community where 47 of the residents had lived in their homes 25 years or longer, mm. the threat to community existence was met with dread and anger toward neighbors who had, from the longer timers' perspective, clearly misjudged the seriousness of the problem. <laughs> Many Centralians who saw the high-risk believers as themselves a peril to the community began to organize to save their town. End mm. quote. So the town sort so of civil war also. This well, yeah. Town. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we're gonna get there. With so, octogenarians. <laughs> <laughs> so the town get sort back of on my lawn. the town was sort of splitting in two, and it it caused an us versus them feeling. It created two ideologies that couldn't exist at the same time in the same place. The concern for health and safety, and the desire to save and preserve Centralia exactly as it always had been for all time. So there were two factions, essentially. There was the Concerned Citizens Action Group against the Centralia Fire, led by a man named John Lamb. And supported by those who lived in the fire hot zones, you know, the ones that were they were the most affected. Mm-hmm. And then there was another faction that didn't really have a name. Uh, we'll call them the Molly Maguire Second Edition. Okay. And this faction was led by a man named John Koshoff, who'd been elected president of the Centralia Council in early 1982, and whose father, John Koshoff Sr., had actually been the secretary of the Centralia Council in 1962 when they had made the dumb decision to set the fucking dump on fire in the first place. And he fucking knew Todd. (laughs) So Koshoff's main priority was to keep as much of Centralia intact as possible, which meant he viewed anyone who was in support of relocation as an enemy. Apostate. Literally. So he and his group employed some threatening and scary tactics to let the enemy know that they that basically they should stop doing what they were doing. Hmm. Um, which They should stop trying to get the government to help and come in and, and change Centralia or else. Which is why I kind of called them the Molly Maguires. Yeah. Were they you know, vi- second edition? They were threatening violence. Who well, comes? They, well, they absolutely were. So John Koshoff, along with several of his supporters, which included his younger sister Helen, who was a lawyer, the Wolmers, and the mayor of the town, actually John Wondoleski, was also a supporter of John Koshoff. They did not. Um, none of them lived in the affected areas of Centralia, right? Mm-hmm. And they openly attacked, verbally attacked those who did. During one council meeting, Helen Kashoff verbally attacked a woman named Joan Girolami, who supported relocation for those affected by the deadly mine gases. By the way, these are the weirdest Irish names I've ever heard of. Sorry. They, they, I know, right? <laughs> Helen cruelly accused Joan of basically causing problems where there were none. And she claimed that Joan didn't have any proof that anyone in town was in danger. Not anyone. Mm-hmm. So not th- even the little Todd. Well, this might seem fine. It might seem strange, right? You might think, how could anybody feel this way? Mm-hmm. It's been 20 fucking years. We're talking about the 80s at this point. The fire started in 1962. In the Pe- 80s, people were just doing coke and they were just thinking about themselves. It's well, all good. People are people are sick. People They're not are putting out fires in the 80s. We didn't start the fire. We're just partying on the fire. Sorry. Flock of seagulls. People are continually getting sick. <laughs> Billy Joel. And there's proof that there's a fire burning beneath the town. And there's proof that there's deadly carbon monoxide in the air. But so many people turned a blind eye to that. And I don't know how they did it. it denial? I don't know. Yeah, it's because so, of that Billy Joel song. 
when we didn't start the fire. <laughs> it was always burning, so ignore that shit. Yet yeah. <laughs> we didn't start the fire. It was always burning, so we ignored that shit because mine cold, dig a hole, start a fire, watch it grow, fuck canaries in their ass. We should probably move, no. Grandpa wants us off his yard. If we move, he'll kill us all. Todd fell into a precipice and his cousin saved his tits, yeah. We actually started the fire because we are irresponsible and that's how humans roll. So to quote Mayor John Wendelowski, Quote, well, that mine fire is extensive, but in my own personal opinion, oh, here we go. I think it's moving away from the town. Nice. From my experience, I feel that some of the boreholes that were checked up there, the temperatures had been steadily going down. Mayors are pretty experienced with mining. Mm-hmm. The fire, I think, is east of town. I don't think it's really under the boroughs of Centralia. It's nice to hear he's a firefighter, too, and an expert on, you know. Yeah. So, so to say that we have fire under the whole boroughs, no. I don't think this is true at all. Nice. End quote. Well, with my hindsight abilities, fuck you. But. <laughs> Every night and day, members of this concerned citizens group received harassing and threatening phone calls, including death threats. David Lamb received a call telling him that if he wanted to re- relocate out of Centralia so bad, he would never leave the town alive. Jeez. Now, it's only slightly ironic that many of the residents who were taking part in these intimidation tactics were actually descendants of the Molly Maguires. They were family who were also known to take part in, you know, some activities that are a little controversial to get their own way. But it, it wasn't really fair because John Cashoff and his little posse, they just didn't seem to either want to accept or care how bad it was for people living in the hot zone. 67-year-old Agnes Owens lived on East Street where bull whores. I mean, <laughs> boar, bull, bull boar, <laughs> boar holes. Those slutty-ass Good. bulls. Those, God damn it. They're bull where, cocks. So East Street where boar holes. Right. They were where they were drilled, uh-huh. uh, which show 580 degree temperatures right outside of her front door. Mm. Um, and her carbon monoxide alarm was going off several times a day. Oh, man, every, I can't even take it when like the little fire. I know when the, the battery is just, low, like beep. once every two years. Yeah. And it just beeps every like mm-hmm. a minute or something. But well, that's enough to drive a person insane. Well, it was going off several times a day, every single day to the point where Agnes would just pass out. And then regain consciousness later when the toxic gases had subsided. It was, this was kind of like her life now. Yeah. Um, and officials actually thought her, that her gas monitor was defective. <laughs> so they swapped it out for a new one. That was their solution. They're like, <laughs> we got you. Oh, your gas monitor must not be working correctly. We are your support group. It's, Have it's, trust. It's going off too much. So let's get you a new one. <laughs> well, the problem is that one kept going off too. The Molly Maguire's second edition of Centralia told everyone that Agnes was crazy. (laughs) They did fail to mention that at one point the ground under her house was 700 degrees and rising. Can you believe that? That'll melt some cock. You know, like in the thing. Calk? Calk. I like to say cock. Calk. That'll melt, the, that'll melt the things. Oh, my God. So in 1982, the U.S. Office of Surface Mining completed a borehole study mm. that cost $850,000. Hmm. Okay, this is, a, this is a study. $850,000. This wasn't like a solution. It was, yeah, there was a borehole study. 
Okay, the borehole probably cost some money. Hiring all the, the dudes, getting everybody to go out there. The, the bullhorn bull was probably expensive. Well, this wasn't like a solution. This was this wasn't a project that was going to stop the fire or make the gases go away. It was just a study to drill a bunch of boreholes in an effort to see if they could determine the exact location of the underground fire, which would then help them figure out what steps could be taken to start solving the problem. Right. Um, this is still in the 80s? Yeah. Uh, okay. What they would I'm discover good. from this study was that it was Let's do it. Uh, an almost $700 million fix. Yeah, just for the record, Zach is not actually a person that does drugs. He smokes weed. Oh, that was a simulation of a narcotic ingestion sound. Is that we prefer that none of you do any kind of drugs that go in the nose? And you probably shouldn't put cannabis up your butt. Sheesh. $700 million would be needed to even start to fix the problem of the fire. In the 80s. And they're looking at this town, they're like, Sorry, guys. Well, sorry. Now, it you're was. Not, you're not getting that shit. It was so hard for them to get that $850,000 for the bullhorse. Bull borehole bull, <laughs> study. Why can't I say that word? I don't know. Borehole. She's got bullween on the mind. <laughs> for the, the whole study, that people in Centralia, like the officials in Centralia and the state of Pennsylvania, they knew they couldn't afford it. $700 million for a small town like that. Mm. And they knew that the federal government wouldn't give them the money that they needed to save this town. Oh, that's a complete B-2 bomber. Or right. That's like a, a stealth bomber. Based on probably sheer luck, the B-2 bomber did cost originally about $737 million. Why does this matter? That'd be about $2 billion today. Who cares? Now back to the dipshit files. Well, and that this was kind of the turning point, you know, it um. usually is. When it's just going to be too much money, people just don't want to do anything about it. They don't They don't have the money. They don't know where they're going to get it from. The minds of the officials at this time were basically like, we got to completely take Centralia out of the picture. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what it seemed like when you were looking into the history. It's like the Simpsons where they put a dome over Springfield and they just erase it off the map. Well, that's, that's what they did. Now, I'm pleased to tell you all about the new Grand Canyon. Coming this weekend, it's east of Shelbyville and south of Capital City. That's where Springfield is! It's nowhere near where anything is or ever was. This is Tom Hanks saying, if you're going to pick a government to trust, why not this one? Yeah. That's what they're doing. Not oh. the dome, though, because that would lock all the CO2 gases that would, in. That would quickly get rid of well, the people problem, for right. sure. Right. Well, they wanted to completely demolish the town and hopefully try and figure out a way to stop the fire from spreading to outside areas. Just have to them like all leave other for, towns. You guys were inviting the entire city over <laughs> to the city next door for an hour and a half. You all come over. Everybody, it's mandatory. Come on over. We're going to give you cookies and presents. And then they just bulldoze everybody's house. Oh, what happened? Uh, your town fell down. What happened? Well, because this fire, it's going to keep going. It's going to keep going. It's going to keep burning. At the end of 1982, the town panicked when they realized the fire was getting closer and closer to Highway 61. And that meant that it was getting closer to the natural gas pipeline that ran parallel to Highway 61. Well, that'd probably be an interesting... You, you know, this one that was... Mm. This pipeline, we talked about it in the first one, that was actually built in the 60s after the fire started. Yikes. So some people laying pipe were like, oh, well, yeah. let's move a little more to the east. That's, yeah, in that first episode. Yeah. We talked about this that. This may be a problem in the future. And, oh. And the company who built that pipeline were like, don't worry about the fire. The fire's over there. <laughs> it's over there. The, fire? the fire's not going to come over here. <laughs> it does, that's not it's just fire over works. there. And even if it does, these underground pipelines can withstand a lot of heat, right? Yes. Well, 
<laughs> not that kind of heat right. that the fire is bringing, right? So obviously, this is an issue now because we don't want the fire under Highway 61. You don't want sinkholes when you know people are driving down the road. People would get pretty angry, right? That. Well, and you don't want the fire to ignite the natural gas pipeline either, right? Yikes! I should say this seems pretty unprecedented. So it's like a lot of the people are like, "Well, you, what's your idea? Uh-huh. What's your fucking solution? Right. Put some fucking sand on it. Come on!" But you if know. twenty at this point. 20 years. You think there'd be some smart engineers around the country that heard heard about this and they're like, I want to use my brain to solve this problem. There was a lot of, uh, well, there was a lot of gaslighting going on and there was a lot of suppression going on. That that should probably keep the smart people away. Really? That really was. Damn. So in the book, Fire Underground, the offer uh, writes, quote, Moving along the buck vein on the Burnsville side of the mountain, the fire was advancing several feet a day. Hmm. The speed of light in mine fire terms. Here on the south side where the mine pillars, uh, the mine support pillars were intact and the way mostly clear, the fire could move much faster than on the Centralia side where the fire had to pick its way through much collapsed roof rock, Hmm. end quote. So this was obviously dangerous for many reasons, and officials were concerned about sinkholes just appearing under vehicles or school buses driving down the highway. And temperatures under the highway in December of 1982 had been 149 degrees. But by January 5th of 1983, just a couple of weeks later, three to be exact, Temperatures had reached 770 degrees. Hey, my lord Satan. Now, what is it to say so? Are we doing something in Pennsylvania? I'm always doing stuff in Pennsylvania. Be more specific. There's a town in Pennsylvania that is currently 700 degrees. Holy fuck, that's hot. Yes, I thought we were doing something there. What's it called? Centralia. You say 700 degrees? Yes, lord. That's hotter than hell. That's hotter than here. Yes, my lord. Well, as soon as it goes on the market, we could use some expansion. We're already in New Jersey. And there was a real concern that the highway might collapse or the natural natural gas line might actually explode. Everything's fine. Well, the following weekend, a crack split open the southbound lanes of Highway 61. But still, the governor refused to declare a safety hazard. Sir, we're basically living in post-apocalyptic conditions. Uh, What are you doing about it? Calm down. Everything's fine. Things are not fucking fine. Now there's dingoes out there eating people's babies. Now there's not dingoes out there. Nope, there's not dingoes. I don't know what he's talking about, but obviously look around. I'd say things are fine looking up for the spring fan. The fairgrounds are 700 degrees. We should do a tropical beach theme. Sir, do you smoke crack? This press conference is over. And the highway remained open. But the following week, heavy rainfall hit the now burning hot pavement, causing a fog that was so thick and dense that dangerous driving conditions were now an additional concern. We were thinking about naming the renaming the town Poisonous Saunaville. Right. I think. So by March of 1983, nearly three dozen families had been forced to leave their homes and parts of Highway 61 were permanently closed. Hmm. And eventually... That whole area of Highway 61, which is just under a mile, it would be closed permanently. And the highway would be rerouted around Centralia, which is part of the whole plan to basically erase the town. To the point where you can't even drive to Centralia on the highway anymore. Hmm. You kind of have to go down that closed portion of the highway so you weren't 
and you weren't going to do that. You would never even know that Centralia existed. So the idea is just to let the fire burn forever. And well, it won't affect anyone but Centralia. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that'll be how that works. Well, I, ho- I hope it is. Actually. I hope that's I how it works. <laughs> yeah. Well, as the months passed, it became very clear to most people that Centralia was doomed. And the main objective now was to just prevent the fire from spreading to neighboring towns. At least that was in the government's mind. The officials weren't really telling anyone living there. <laughs> the officials were planning things for Centralia years before they were open with the residents about those plans. I wonder what they were. I wonder what some of the plans were. They're like, get the fuck out of here, Tim. Where where it was like, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna get all the tractors in. We're the gonna state. buy a bunch of corks. Buy a bunch of corks. <laughs> that would work. We get all the tractors in the state. We dig up the city. We shoot it to the moon. Fire and all. It'll probably put itself out on the way to space. We don't know. Oh, Fucking just get it out. Oh, there is one. Get out here, Tim. Okay, we're gonna get there. You and Todd. We're all, I'm literally three words away from one of their plans that you just na- hit the nail on the head. Okay, yeah, here I but go. But one of the plans was to dig a 500-foot trench yes. around the entire town. <laughs> and just move it. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here, town. But this came along with the understanding that it would mean residents would be required to abandon their homes and evacuate. And this is when many people started to believe that they were victims of a government and big business conspiracy at the highest levels. Mm. And honestly... I haven't even touched on the level of government corruption that this town had to deal with. Oh, they were shitty people, so it they was, made conspiracy seem pretty realistic well, because they're shitty people. It was shitty people. The non-conspiratorial. Yeah. Right. Well, the amount, <laughs> the amount that was covered up while everyone from state to federal politicians looked the other way, there would, there would be no way to cover all of that in two episodes. Hmm. Um, but I suggest if you're interested in this topic, you should read that book, uh, Fire Underground by David DeCock. It goes in depth into what the government was doing, what the politicians were doing, what they weren't doing, uh, what they were saying to each other behind the scenes. And all this stuff does add up, in my opinion, to real corruption and in a giant disappointment uh, to the people that these public servants were supposed to be serving. Hmm. Corruption, maybe not conspiracy. Um, So I honestly can't blame the residents of Centralia who felt that there was something nefarious going on. The people of Centralia had long believed that there was still a treasure trove of valuable anthracite coal laying beneath their feet, specifically in the mammoth vein. Probably not anymore. It's on fire. Well, this vein of coal was named mammoth because of just how much coal it held. Centralia had owned the rights to its own coal since 1950. And this had been done specifically to prevent big mining companies from coming in and continuing their work because uh-huh. Centralia was worried that more mine shafts and more digging would cause more safety and environmental issues. Todd but, was just a fall guy. He was just the cover story mm-hmm. for a deeper thing. Goes but, all the way up. But it also meant that no one could dig up the coal under the town unless, of course, there was no town. Meaning there was no one left there to lay claim to the financially beneficial assets beneath the ground. An article in May of 1974 seemed to be what planted the seeds of this conspiracy theory. When the article posed the question of whether or not the town of Centralia could be moved partially or completely because the town itself was only worth about a million dollars. But evidently it sat on a basin of coal worth $25 million. And at that time, yeah, people lost their minds when they read this article. Hmm. John Coddington was actually the mayor 
in the 1970s, and he presided over a town meeting where residents were livid at the suggestion that they would be shoved from their homes so that someone or many someones could come in and steal the coal and make a buck. Does seem like they'd want to like collectively bargain some shit. Like, mm-hmm. all right, this was ours, and we're going to keep it. We're going to have to move, but it's still our shit. Right. They so can't have it now. How do we get it out? The way the conspiracy theory goes is that after the mine fire began in 1962, various government agencies, along with private businesses, conspired to get at the valuable anthracite coal. So they purposely failed again and again to put the fire out hoping to eventually put the residents of Centralia in a position where they had no choice but to leave and abandon their homes. There's just one evil dude that's like, if we keep it burning, they will finally leave. (laughs) And he dies, and he's trained his child to be evil. He's Mm -hmm. like, just for father. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I thought that. Well, so they have, uh, they're left (laughs) with no choice but to leave, abandon their homes, abandon their town, and abandon their cult. Abandon just about everything they knew. So this theory was further strengthened in the 1980s when talks of relocation began. Because at first, the governor and government agencies made it seem as if leaving Centralia was a choice. You know, like you don't have to leave. But if you don't feel safe, you can leave. (laughs) Or if you're not in an area of the town affected by the mine fire, you don't have to leave. Many people, of course, did leave. But some of them stayed, believing that they were doing the equivalent of chaining themselves to a giant redwood tree that Mm. was at risk of being chopped down. Right, I bet so. Well, literally, they were putting themselves between the coal and whoever wanted it, also known as the greedy government. Mm. Some people even believe that the council had set the fire on purpose Hmm. in 1962 for this specific reason. Like, they were getting paid off. I don't know Uh, these people, but are people above that in general? No, that's just it. I don't know. Well, they, you know, they were getting paid off, and if they helped the big guy get the coal that was under Centralia, these people on the council would be paid off. So I'm starting to think Todd is innocent. At first, it was a voluntary thing. In the beginning, the governor was like, you can leave if you want. But if you don't, you don't have to leave. I mean, this is your home. We understand. But as time went on, it started to become less of a voluntary thing and more like a mandatory thing. And that's when people got a little sensitive about it. And, I, you know, I don't blame them. Especially if there aren't solutions that are mm-hmm. good. For well, there aren't. Dislocated. On November 19th, 1983, Congress passed a $42 million appropriation bill to help relocate, which I think is kind of funny. They want to relocate families with an appropriation bill hmm. to appropriate is to take. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny yes. uh, to help relocate families who wanted to leave town because they no longer felt safe in their own homes. Between 1985 and 1991, 545 homes and businesses were acquired, uh, acquired by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. But right. of course, the plan was to acquire these homes and then simply condemn and level them and for the people who had lived in those homes it's not a great situation Hmm. because they didn't really have a choice they had to leave because it wasn't safe Um, but they weren't given fair prices for their homes by Pennsylvania either Hmm. so the state bought the houses but they didn't give people anywhere close to what the homes would have been worth if they hadn't been sitting on top of a mine fire raging below so for one instance uh, in one instance the family was given eleven thousand dollars for their home Hmm. But the market value was actually $36,000. 
At least I got something as part well, of a voice in my head is saying, but absolutely. At least they like, got something that's terrible. Eminent domain's awful that way, too. Yeah. yeah. No, but the home was depreciated for several line items, namely the raging infernal below, as well as the life-threatening toxic gases in the air. The families were told that they either took the money or they stayed right where they were in homes that would eventually kill them. And uh, by the way, there's no highway in or out now. So That's crazy. Ghost um, town. For real. Well, by, Ghost highway. By the fall of 1986, less than 50 structures remained standing in Centralia. But it was all uh, done under the guise of relocation being voluntary. Unless you were a renter, of course, and then you didn't have a choice. Which was the sad reality for John and Bertha Mayernick a couple in their 60s who had been renting a house at 420 West Center Street in the area of Centralia that hadn't been affected by the fire yet. When their landlord sold the house to the Redevelopment Authority in October of 1985, John and Bertha were told that they would need to find another place to live. But, of course, they didn't really want to leave, especially Bertha, who'd been born in Centralia. She'd been raised there. Her family had owned a grocery store there in the 30s. Her husband, John, had worked the mines in Centralia until he had a stroke in his 50s, and he had to stop working. At first, John, her husband, didn't want to leave either. But eventually, John would give in to the reality that they would just have to move. It's because he was a canary breeder. He's like, this is not working for me. (laughs) Well, Bertha was less willing to accept it, and the couple began arguing. For months, with their arguments, uh, they intensified. As pressure came from the Columbia County Redevelopment Authority, who had sent an eviction notice to the Marinics on May 12, 1987, giving them 90 days to get the fuck out. Hmm. That 90 days expired on August 12th, but John and Bertha stayed. They were actually one of only two couples who had not made other living arrangements who had received these eviction notices. Couples often heard the two arguing, and on October 6, 1987, during an alcohol-fueled fight, John stabbed his wife Bertha to death in the house that they were being forced to leave. Wow. Realizing what he'd done, John got in his car, drove to the badlands that surrounded the town. He parked, poured gasoline all over himself, and lit a match killing himself in a fiery blaze which lit all of the air on fire <laughs> right? in all of pennsylvania <laughs> oh my gosh what a dick. the mine fire continued to move throughout centralia all through the 80s even as the town emptied out and by the end of the decade it was now encroaching areas that had previously been considered safe areas where the town's most stubborn residents continued to live despite multiple sinkholes popping up Uh, or falling in (laughs) and deep cracks in the pavement stretching out within just feet of their front doors Mm. they're they're the holdout seriously a large sinkhole was complicated when a water main began leaking into the sinkhole and once combined with the fire inside the water created vast amounts of billowing steam this is fine it was fine it was just loaded with carbon monoxide they described it as being rich in co2 but this is rich stay we gotta stay this steam was basically just vaporized co2 i mean seriously The residents who stayed and firmly believed that there was no danger and this was all an effort to steal the coal, they were more concerned that their hometown had now become a morbid tourist attraction. Hmm. 
they were far more concerned with people just appearing and taking pictures and asking questions than they were with the poison venting into the air outside their open windows. Well, they're used to that shit now. Well, like, well this is fine. I'm down. But get, uh, well, get Steven Spielberg and his <laughs> film crew the fuck out of here. Well, you know, it has been 20 years. A woman named Mary Lou Gaynan told uh, a reporter, quote, Florida, Iowa, Wisconsin. They want to see the fire burn. They want to see glow. They want to see flames. End quote. She's talking about the tourists. Right. Called out some specific states. So for the people well, that duh. came... Oh. The people that came around that time, they would see that. I mean, you could look out into the Badlands and you could see the earth glowing from within. You know, the kind of way when you when you have a campfire and the wood on the top of the fire is kind of burned out and it's all charred. Mm-hmm. It's not really ignited anymore, but right underneath you can see the glowing embers that, that are there. Mm-hmm. Well, evidently, that's what it was like. And mm-hmm. admittedly, it looked really cool at night, but... Not if you were trying to pretend that everything was fine. Right. Uh, and you were going to continue living in this town that was being consumed by flames. I don't know if I like the idea of living inside a campfire, husband. Just think of it as hickory-flavored air. I mean, it is kind of pretty. There you go. Look at the bright side. Yesterday, a dog fell into a precipice, husband. Yeah, that poodle never liked me. Oh, I love Bruno. You're making a bigger deal out of this than it needs to be. I'm about 80% sure I died and I'm living in hell. Now, the Office of Surface Mining tried to fix that sinkhole by drilling some more boreholes and backfilling the underground holes. But all their efforts seemed to only make things worse. Again, uh, especially the backfilling. Remember what happened the last time with the backfilling? Yeah. That's what pushed all the gases up into the people's houses. Right. Um, so this somehow created more sinkholes. Noise. And this just caused the remaining residents to accuse the OSM of purposely making things worse just to chase them out. These people are pissed at this point. I mean, I don't blame these people for being pissed. However, I don't either. Uh, they should have got the fuck out. It's not an ideal situation, wife. It's really not. <laughs> but they can't really sell their homes. I right. mean, they most of them had mortgages. I mean, just financial. It's your whole life it's, ruined, yeah. It's financial, financial ruin. It's your community tie. All of it. Your family history. Yeah. In 1980, Centralia held 1,017 people. By 1990, only 63 remained. And although uh, those 63 people suspected the government was trying to force them out, they didn't even know the half of it. They didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. Governor Dick Thornburg had promised these (laughs) residents that they could stay, that nobody was going to try and make them leave their homes. But behind the scenes, there was a lot happening. A new governor took office and several organizations were pushing for eminent domain. Eminent domain is the right of the government or its agents to seize private property for public use without the owner's consent, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. A man named Jack Carling, who was managing the Centralia Relocation Program on behalf of the Pennsylvania Department of Community Affairs, just could not understand why they were allowing people to stay in Centralia when it was truly dangerous. And then Bill Klink, the executive director of the Columbia uh, County Housing and redevelopment authority he gave an interview to the reading or reading depending on i've heard it pronounced both ways right i think it is reading in the area reading reading eagle in 1991 and he really was uh filled with contempt his voice you could just hear it when he claimed that the rational people of centralia had enough sense to leave long ago and the ones who remained were too ignorant or blind to feel fear nice 
Humans are That was his quote. This is another quote. There is real danger here. There are houses in town I wouldn't sleep in for one night. End quote. The holdouts in Centralia gave their own interviews, uh, kind of scoffing at the assertions made by Clink and Carling that the town was not safe. Like, Everything's fine. Right. Well, Lana Mervine told the Chicago fine. Tribune, look around you. It's ridiculous. We're no, we're in no danger. Everything's great here. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> and her husband, Lamar Mervine, who uh, started acting as the mayor <laughs> of whatever was left All of right. Centralia. His, the warlord. His, he said, quote, we don't have guns or we'd be like Waco. We're going to fight right down to the end. End mm. quote. Wow. So in early February of 1992, the remaining residents were sent a message that the end may be closer than they thought. And they all started receiving notices of eminent domain in their mailboxes. They tried fighting. Uh, They filed lawsuits. They wrote letters. They stayed put. But one by one, most of the remaining residents would leave Centralia, Pennsylvania behind. But not all of them. In 1993, Highway 61 was permanently closed and rerouted completely, and a section of the road would become known as Graffiti Highway, because after years of being completely abandoned, it was transformed into a colorful canvas for local artists. Hmm. By 2013, the cracked and bubbled asphalt canvas was a rainbow of vibrant graffiti hmm. i'd love to see that well it you know i've seen pictures and actually our listeners from uh, last week's episode they they shared a couple of them uh on social media oh. that they had dug up and found nice. and it really was a, a beautiful thing i mean i'm not a big fan of graffiti but it from the, an aerial view you know it oh, looked yeah, pretty yeah. absolutely i'd love to hear from listeners in the area too mm-hmm. like what what they think did they ever go see it Right. You know, you know, and how far, I mean, I, you do the research, so I'm sure mm-hmm. it's pretty spot on, but, uh, yeah, I wonder if there's any stuff, any crazy legends that they know about because they're locals and stuff. Mm-hmm. Send, send us what you know. I couldn't find anything more than you're the fantastic at what you do. Why? And the conspiracy theory. But in 2020, when the graffiti highway began drawing even more visitors due to the pandemic where everyone was kind of locked up and. Uh, They couldn't go into public. They couldn't go into public places. And they had to find something to do. Mm. So they would go uh, exploring, you know, and this was outdoors. So it was a little more on the safe side. Uh, The decision was made to basically remove the appeal of the highway. Oh, no, they ruined all of them. Now, I understand this because there's still people living in this town, right? They're apparently... The last of the residents, there were only five, by the way, <laughs> okay. um, said that these tourists were coming and they were rude and disrespectful. They were walking all around the town. Um, th- they were acting as if people didn't live there, basically. Well, it's five people, so they really don't. There's well, not, there's not really people there. You no. know, in, in all I get honesty, it. Property, even in the apocalypse, I kind of understand because the news articles and blogs about Centralia, they do call it a ghost town. In fact, you even said so just a few minutes ago. Yeah, um, but it's not technically a ghost town because there's people living there still. Right. Uh, it is still private property. Well, I guess it's not completely true. Well, I mean, it's not. I'm going to demand it. It's not technically private property because even the homes um, of the five people who remain, they were claimed by the government through eminent domain. But But they they just. Well, they basically said you can stay here as long as you want. The government said, you know, the homes are ours. You can stay here if you want to. You can pay us in the teeth that fall out. Well, the the government took their homes, but they didn't force them out. However, once they die or they leave the, these houses, um, they will be 
bulldozed. And that hundred year plan to destroy, or whatever, sixty what? year <laughs> plan to destroy this town for its coal uh, will finally come to fruition. So sorry, I don't mean to make light of something that people actually have lived through and people yeah, know. Yeah, it's and a terrible, terrible thing. Right. You know. <clears throat> so anyway, at this point, the residents who remained and even people in town surrounding a Centralia they wanted that graffiti highway covered up because it was bringing in a bunch of people. Right, I five mean, people wanted it. <clears throat> it, was, it was bringing in tourists. So according to Atlas Obscura, during the week of April 6th, 2020, a three-day burial process took place and a convoy of 400 dump trucks descended on the area delivering between 8,000 and 10,000 tons of dirt which was piled on top of the colorful concrete. So they can get that done. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't at any point... In 40 years, 50 years, mm-hmm. fix this, you know, this issue. So to this day, old Highway 61 is still covered with this dirt, but oh, it's, man. it still cracks open. Someday in the future, when all this shit crumbles and the mm-hmm. humans build it up again, and they start digging around fucking Pennsylvania, they're going to find this. Mm-hmm. Maybe thousands of years from now, they're going to find this like colorful, beautiful road buried under dirt, and they'll be like... Man, our ancestors liked penises. That's a lot of dick, dick pics. Actually, paint on concrete underneath dirt would not last very long. Certainly not thousands of years. Anyway. Well, to this day, um, it's still covered. Uh, it still cracks open and, and throws smoke and fumes into the air from time to time. Although, it's just a little less colorful. Uh, the area still attracts tourists as well. So in 2002, the U.S. Postal Service discontinued its services to Centralia. And as of 2012, the mine fire involved about 400 surface acres and was growing at a rate of 50 to 75 feet a year. Hmm. So if you visited Centralia today, you'd have a hard time finding it because it no longer looks like a town with paved streets and and homes. Most of it has become overgrown and most parts of the town, um, if not for the signs that are posted warning visitors to proceed with caution, you wouldn't even really know that anything stood there at all. Hmm. Now, according to author David DeCock, again, the motive, uh, which would have been financial, doesn't really add up. And and I kind of agree here. Even if there is wealth, uh, a wealth of anthracite coal beneath Centralia, which I kind of believe there is, right, probably. there really isn't that big of a market for anthracite coal at this point. In his book, Fire Underground, again, DeCock writes, quote, anthracite production in Pennsylvania peaked at 99.7 million tons in 1917 and began a relatively steady decline as the nation switched to other more convenient fuels. We talked about this in the first episode, um, namely oils, uh, heating oil and natural gas. Even in 1950, some 44.1 million tons of anthracite were still pulled out of the mines by the state, in the state. But by 1974, only 6.6 million tons were produced. In 2006, the total had declined to 1.5 million tons, enough to fuel the remaining homes that used anthracite for heat, plus a few bakeries and pizza ovens in New York City. End Mm. quote. So... (laughs) <clears throat> so so at this, the conspiracy doesn't add up unless there was gold yeah, under right. there. Right. It doesn't add up unless yeah. there was reason. So at this point, besides Pennsylvania and some very small parts of the U.S., most of the anthracite coal is coming from China. Hmm. So anybody who needs anthracite coal at this point can get it cheaper from China. Hmm. So there's likely there is no conspiracy. 
Uh, but I also think sometimes people come up with conspiracies to just make themselves feel better yeah. uh, about the fact that they're afraid of something. It's you more know? of a realm shape wife. <laughs> so realm. I think a lot of these residents were afraid to leave the only place they'd ever known. I think a lot of them were afraid to cut themselves off from their history and their ancestors. And I think it was easier for them to claim the idea that they were fighting uh, the big guy. Yeah. You know? Always is. Then it uh, it was easier than it was to say, we're afraid. We're afraid of change. We're afraid to see what else is out there when we're perfectly happy with what we have here. So I think this happens a lot in life. And maybe we should uh, be more understanding of this when, you know, others come up with what they believe to be uh, these bizarre conspiracy theories. Either one, you should acknowledge that the conspiracy theory might be true. I mean, there's always that possibility Uh, or two uh, you need to consider where this is coming from Uh, what's this person feeling that they're not showing us at that time um, fueling the fire for this fear and this conspiracy put your psychologist hat on your psychiatrist hat on. well you know just be understanding and empathetic a little bit that's pretty much where we're at now we got five people living in centralia who are all pissed off at this podcast for right real they're they don't like me they probably like you you're probably fair they don't like me <laughs> and it's funny to call them like they live there uh-huh. because some hippies or these tourists that they don't like they show up in a fucking vw bug and there's six of them it's mm-hmm. like well we're now the town we, <laughs> democracy bro we we live here now we're voting you to shut up oh we, my god we keep the fucking highway colorful I don't know. Uh, sorry well, well, we got people still going there for tourist attraction, even though each year there's less there to see. Uh, we got a huge issue with the fire still burning and really no one to blame it on. Um, now, really, there are many people to blame, but there's nobody to blame who can fix it. So trying to find someone to blame is totally counterproductive ah! at this point. At the end of the day, I think it's just a really... I don't know. It was a really interesting story. Yeah, it is. Uh, It's a story about people whose motives may not, we may not understand, but we can understand their connection to their past, their traditions, their history. I feel like that's under, I I understand it. Well, and I can also, I mean, I think we can also, all of us can understand how completely devastating it'd be uh, to be forced to walk away. Yeah. Nearly empty handed from your home, your traditions and your history, you know? Very sad. So... That is my story. That's my story of awesome. Centralia. Well, let's talk about what we feel about things on the other side of the thing. What do our dipshits think about this whole story? Let's find out. Ah. Centralia. Mm. Not a yeah. place anymore. Doesn't exist anymore. Well, not really. There's I five mean, people that are mad at me. To, but, according to five people, it yeah. still exists. Right. And in people's hearts, it does. And it exists to the tourists that are showing up and taking pictures. But this is like a real ghost town. Like there's ghost towns where it's like, oh, mm-hmm. there's probably spirits here. Probably. Whatever. I don't even know. If Nobody lives a, there anymore. This is like. I don't even know if it's a ghost town anymore because uh, because of the dangers of, of these, the gases building up in these structures. When they're emptied out, they're leveled. So there's really nothing there. Fair. Okay. But I mean, that's the thing, though. It used to be a town mm-hmm. and all these things happened and. People even were like, we can't even let the roads go there anymore. Right. We can't even let the road exist there anymore. Well, they rerouted the highway. Yeah, that's Um, interesting. I, you know, because the other one was getting destroyed. You know, I don't know where, I know the fire's still burning. That's my big Um, question. mm -hmm. And as far as I know, all the way up to uh, 2021, 
I don't know. It seems to have gone silent after that. It feels it like is... something, just like a little kid that's been playing with matches. It's like, I should probably keep an eye on that yeah. forest fire that I may have started. Mm-hmm. This thing, you should probably keep an eye on. And, well, you know, I feel like this this kind of showcases some levels of we have a lot of great technology. Mm-hmm. But we should probably know what the hell's going on with this underground fire that won't go out. Right. We should probably know all about it at yeah, all we, times. We, and, you know, I have a feeling we we probably do. Probably do. I know I do. Obviously. <clears throat> I'm sure that that I'm speaking way out I'm of school. I'm sure that the uh, the scientists are uh, have it figured out. I, I imagine the people. Well, I imagine the people of Pennsylvania are are very interested in this. Mm. Oh, I could imagine, especially of, since there's a natural uh, gas pipeline right there. Fuck, man! Right there. How many things like that are happening on the Earth? Mm. that are also not mm-hmm. talked about. How many ghost towns right. are, are just erased from the maps in history mm-hmm. for reasons that we have no idea? We have a ghost town that's about an uh, hour and 20 minutes out of Spokane. It's an official ghost town. Really? What's that? Yeah. Uh, I want to say it's like Adams Town or something. Huh. God damn it. I'm going to look it up since we're sitting here talking about it. Right. Um, but it was it was an interesting find. Can I go there and get some sarsaparilla? No, well, you have to you have to hike like two and a half miles in. Okay, I like. Well, I don't like the hiking part or being um, in nature, but I do like the fact that it's not get some sarsaparilla and we'll tell you the story of the ghost town of Adamsville. Let's take that. a look. Oh, Bodie, is it Bodie? Yeah, it's Bodie. Yeah. The town of Bodie. Nice. If you blink, let's see. Quartermasterville. Yeah, Quartermasterville. Yeah. Uh, let's see. It was a it was a gold rush town. Um, did they serve sarsaparilla? Sorry. Let's see here. Bodie. Located a dozen miles north of the town of Wakanda on Highway 20. Okay. Uh, it's an old mining town, and it was abandoned. So it's in Okanagan County. Right. And you it's could, a ghost town because nobody lives there. That's what people think. But horrible, horrible things happened to this town mm-hmm. to where, I mean, a ghost town should have buildings that are just... That, Things just ruined them, you know. They fell down mm-hmm. because of the ghosts, oh. <laughs> the demon shit. It's like there shouldn't be a town the, in a ghost town. The houses town. fell down because demons. Because demons and stuff. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, this is the end of the show. Thank you for yep. that. That was fucking two weeks of really interesting stuff. Thank you. It's hard to imagine being in those people's shoes, mm. and uh, it, it's hard to want to make jokes about it. There's a couple names in there about penises that were obvious. Well, because you're a twelve-year-old boy. I know, and then we'll always be that way. <laughs> I'm not the only one. I am not. The thing that I found interesting is the government had created a, a law that stated that Centralia couldn't do what they did that started the fire. Right. Um, they said, don't do that. Here's a law. You're not supposed to do these things. I'd... And Centralia said, yeah, that's kind of what we want to do it anyways. <laughs> and so the government said, okay, well, here's a guy who can look at your stuff and tell you if you can do it. And the guy looked at the stuff and said, okay, yeah, you can do this only if you do these things. And so Centralia is like, sweet. All right, we're going to go do those things. And they did those things. But they missed one of the things that they were supposed to do. Um, evidently, it was hidden. I don't think so. I think somebody was lazy. Todd was lazy. Yeah. So they didn't do one of the 15 things they were supposed to do or 21 things or whatever. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, they lit it on fire. And and here we go today with this story, a lot of urban legend, a lot of conspiracy theory, a lot of people uh, with destroyed lives, specifically that couple that lost their lives due to Mm. um, 
chaos and, and anger, violence. Um, everything has changed because somebody didn't do the thing. <laughs> do the thing. You know, and the government had had a thing in place that said, don't do that thing. Right. Yeah. Fair and enough. so they sent a guy that said, yeah, you can't do it unless you do this other thing. And they said, okay, well, we're going to do all the things. Right. But the little city government and, was like, we're right, going to do what we want to do. But they missed one of the, the lot of things. And, and here we are. Mm-hmm. So that's Centralia in a nutshell. How do you like that? You use the word chaos. Boom. I would say, yeah, well done. <laughs> Damn. But that is chaos. That mm-hmm. is what a crazy time period mm-hmm. in place in, on the earth. And again, I wonder how many other places on earth have these stories. In this country, outside of it, I'm sure there is a lot. It's probably part of the human pattern is to fuck something up so badly right, that we well, hide it forever. <laughs> what do you mean probably? It's what do you mean pro- probably? probably? It happens all the fucking time. Maybe. Maybe. Jeez. Anyway. Thank you for listening. We appreciate yes. you guys. Info at scottcast.com for, you know, tell us all the things that you want to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also the Patreon. You guys know all about that. Yeah. There's also a website with merch and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, probably some Facebook things yeah, and they, you know, Discord that we really like. Right. And all sorts Scatcast. of other stuff. Scatcast.com. Uh, info is is our email address. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash Scatcast. That's the thing. We appreciate you people that will never sign up. It's yeah, all good. Yeah, thank you for listening. Yeah, it's really, that's the main thing. And uh, I love, I love the emails. I love the feedback. Yeah, that's um, awesome. I love the social media posts. Even if I don't answer right away, I will answer you. I always answer the, the emails uh, for the dipshit files. Um, and I do my best to always respond to social media stuff too. Right. Um, and I love your stories and your ideas. Keep them coming. Yeah. We've met a lot of really mm-hmm. cool people through this. Mm-hmm. All right. Shout out to the trusted turds. They are, you guys know who they are. And to the elder turds. Mm-hmm. And you guys know who you are. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. And thank you guys for that. And as always, we'll talk at you in the future. It'll seem like the present. Presents. Bye. Bye. Bing, bong, bong, bongs, <laughs> poop. Are you guys drunk? I want some.